Do me a favor and open up the Bible that you brought with you. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, use the Bible that's there in the pew. It's page 622. We're turning to Daniel chapter 10 and 11. If you have your phone and you're using the Bible app, that's a Version product. Uh, you tap more at the bottom of your screen, the equal sign, and then events, and you'll see Grace Lutheran Church pulsating on a map. If you click that, it'll go right to our scripture this morning. As you're finding Daniel 10 and 11, if you've been with us, if you've been tracking it, we're coming into the home stretch of our time in this book, in the book of Daniel. And if you haven't been with us in a while or at all, Daniel breaks up into two parts. And the first six chapters are basically stories. They're historical narrative. Basically, they're stories about how God had worked in and through the life of Daniel. But then you get to chapter seven, as we saw a few weeks back, and there's this shift moving from stories of God, how God had worked in and through the life of Daniel to what's formerly known as apocalyptic literature. And instead of being sort of these linear stories, we get these epic and at times confusing visions of how God would work in and through Daniel and his people in the future. And if you've been with us when we made that shift at chapter 7, each chapter division has represented a separate prophetic foresight. But these last three chapters of the book are different because in these last three chapters, they convey one great and final vision. Now, given that, that it's one vision here in these last three chapters, ideally we should consider them all at once. But that would mean we'd be digesting about 79 verses today. So we're going to spend the next two weekends, today and next Sunday, absorbing and processing this incredibly detailed and overwhelming picture displayed before Daniel and before us. The good thing about Daniel when we get into this apocalyptic literature is Daniel, as he records what he sees, always provides chronological markers for us so we kind of know where we are in terms of time. And this final vision, if you have chapter 10 open, you can kind of look down at it. This final vision, Daniel tells us, comes in the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. So I want to kind of set the context here where things are. God had promised long ago that Israel's exile to Babylon would end after 70 years. Now, not long after Daniel offered a prayer of concession, confession based upon that anticipation of God ending their time of exile, and we looked at that last week in chapter 9, not long after that confession, a couple years, the proclamation comes out of Persia. Israel's captivity in Babylon has ended. Permission is granted for the Israelites to return to their homeland. All who had been in exile are released to restore their city and their temple. Now, given that this has all happened as we come to chapter 10, given the fulfillment of what God had foretold, we would expect to find Daniel celebrating. But if you're looking down at Daniel chapter 10, Daniel tells us that at the close of the Passover observance, and it doesn't explicitly mention Passover, but Daniel says at the close of the first month, at the, at three weeks in, and the first month, the start of the new year for the Israelites was always the beginning, the celebration of Passover. So in the midst of the Passover celebration, in the aftermath, Daniel is not celebrating. No, he tells us he is fasting and mourning. Why? Now, Daniel doesn't tell us why, but the whole of Scripture, other books in the Bible, help us to understand what's going on to understand why Daniel is fasting and mourning. There's two things that are probably leading Daniel to be depressed. The first is even though the exiles have been given permission to go home, the homecoming itself is happening surprisingly slow. It's slow going, meaning people aren't going home. 
Now, what you need to understand is, is that besides King Cyrus granting freedom to leave exile and return to Jerusalem. Besides this, King Cyrus also decreed that those who left Babylon and returned home would be equipped with silver, gold, supplies, and animals, anything they would need for their journey and the work that they had to do. So think about this. Even though the laws had been changed, the gates had been opened, even though the power of the state had been provided for the rebuilding effort, multitudes of Israelites remain in self-imposed exile. They choose to stay in the comfort and culture of the big city rather than going back and starting over in Jerusalem. And so no doubt Daniel is mourning this. So first, the homecoming is slow going, but second, the other reason why Daniel's probably fasting and mourning is the news that's been sent back from those who did go home isn't good. And we know this especially from the book of Ezra in our Bibles. In the book of Ezra, we're told that when the people returned home and sought to rebuild their lives, they faced opposition from those who had settled in the land during their absence. Things eventually got so bad that a work stoppage was issued, and there's no clear sign of when the restoration project will resume. And so many who have answered the call have gone back, are becoming discouraged, and they're fading away. And no doubt this is concerning Daniel as well. So you need to kind of swim in that because it's in the midst of that climate, okay? It's in the midst of that climate. One of complacency on the one hand for those who've decided to just stay put, and on the, at the same time in the midst of a climate of frustration and discouragement for those who are facing opposition for going back, that Daniel is mourning and fasting, and he tells us he goes down by the Tigris River. And I like to picture this. The Tigris River is this mighty river about a mile wide, and it's this river that's just constantly moving and surging forward. And I picture that Daniel goes down by the river and looking at this massive flowing edifice, natural edifice, he's pondering the flow of history, man. This is like one of those moments, right? Where as he looks at this river, he asks, just goes, what? what's going on, man? Where's it all going? What's it all about? And it's in that moment that Daniel tells us he looked up and suddenly gains a little eternal perspective. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to read from Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 5. Daniel writes, I looked up, and there was before me a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. 
But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision. My Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, Lord. Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open as we're looking at Daniel 10 and 11 today. I've read you most of 10, but I'll talk about Daniel. We're not reading it, but we will be looking at it. One more time, in case you came in late or you didn't catch it the first time, these final three chapters of Daniel, 10, 11, and 12, make up one unit, one unit with three parts. Chapter 10 is the prelude to the vision. Chapter 11 is the bulk of the vision. And chapter 12 is the postscript, the postlude to the vision. Today, we're going to focus on chapter 10 and 11. We're going to look at the prelude, and we're going to look at the bulk of the vision. And next Sunday, we're going to look at the whole vision, and the postlude, the book of Daniel as a whole. So, with that kind of orientation, let's review what we see here briefly. Daniel, as I said, is down by the Tigris River with a few friends pondering life. When all of a sudden he looks up and catches a vision of a great and imposing figure. You heard it described, and I'll remind you again as you look down at it. It is a man clothed in linen whose skin radiates like bronze with a brilliantly radiant face marked by these intense eyes like flaming torches and a voice that is not singular but a voice so imposing it sounds like a multitude. And we might be wondering who this is. It's never specifically identified for us. But what I will encourage you to do later is if you take this description of what Daniel sees of this figure and go all the way to the under end of our scriptures, to the last book of the Bible, to what the apostle John describes encountering in the book of Revelation in the, in the first couple of chapters, I believe a strong case can be made that Daniel is looking upon the glorified person of Jesus Christ. Daniel is looking upon the glorified person of Jesus Christ. And truth be told, it is like a Damascus Road experience for Daniel. Remember Paul on the Damascus Road? That's what it's like for Daniel. Because much like Paul's encounter, Daniel's companions were told, even though they cannot perceive what Daniel is seeing, they can't see it. They sense something mighty and powerful is happening, and it leads them all to flee the scene. Daniel is left all alone in the presence of the living God. And he becomes understandably weak at the knees. 
completely overwhelmed and almost down and out for the count, a second being appears, an angel, most likely because the angel that's come previously in these other visions, it's probably Gabriel. An angel comes who gives Daniel an amazingly accurate vision of the next 400 years of history. And that's chapter 11, which we didn't read, but you have open before you. And you can peruse it as I talk about it now. Chapter 11 is a litany of battles. A litany of battles in which Israel is a geographic buffer zone. Israel is a land bridge of people sitting between and watching aspiring and conflicting kingdoms rage against each other. Verses 2 through 4 in chapter 11 describe how the Persian Empire gives way to the rise of the Greeks through Alexander the Great. Verses 5 through 35 in chapter 11 foretell the division of Alexander the Great's empire and focuses specifically on two main branches of that fourfold division, the north and the south, and how they keep fighting with each other. The kings of the north, the Seleucid dynasty based in Syria, and the kings of the south, the Potemic dynasty based in Egypt, war back and forth against each other, again with Israel caught in the middle. And these conflicts ultimately culminate in the rise of a terrible dictator, verse 21 in chapter 11, a king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, who eventually turns his attention towards Jerusalem. He will first disrupt the people's worship of the Lord through seduction. He will seduce them by trying to lead them astray through enculturation, to abandon their ways and to embrace the ways of the Syrian culture. But ultimately, he will just attack, all-out attack the people of God, bringing persecution against those who resist. And in this vision in 11, we're told that eventually Israel will withstand this persecution and gain her independence for a time. All of this, by the way, that's described in chapter 11 uh, in terms of Antiochus Epiphanes in Israel, we can find in, in our Bibles, if we were Catholics, <laughs> we have books that are not in our Bible that our Catholic brothers and sisters do. We can talk about why that is later. But the, the book, if you wanted to find it, you can go online, it's the book of Maccabees. Maccabees describes this history as it happened. As we look at this picture, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, if you've been with us from chapter 7 on, but Daniel through chapter 7 through chapter 12 gets four prophetic visions. But really, by now, you're starting to notice something, I hope. That even though there's four different visions from chapter 7 to chapter 12, it's all basically the same picture. It's all basically the same picture. Dealing explicitly, giving specifics in terms of the next couple of centuries for Daniel and his people, about 400 years. And then getting more implicit, less specific about the overall future of humanity. Daniel keeps seeing four times the same vision, but he just sees it from different angles. Different angles in the sense of where he's standing in terms of history as those events are coming towards him. Now, I want to tell you that chapter 11's got a lot of detail in it. And because it's the same vision... I preached on Daniel chapter 8, which has some of the same information, not as much detail, a couple of weeks ago. And that's when I dug in with us and we got into the details of how the events of history accurately line up with the picture that Daniel is seeing. That Daniel is given 400 years before it happens. So I'm not going to, going to rehash all of that today. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty of that, you want to go back and listen when I preached on chapter 8. What I'd like to do, what I want us to do, is instead to pull back 
from the particulars and the intricacies of this grand vision and to pull back and try to grasp the big picture that Daniel is being shown here. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the details, we can miss the forest for the trees. And I want us to be able to see the big picture. In the midst of this spectacular vision, repeated four times, Daniel receives three crucial insights. And I want to talk about each one of those insights. The first two insights that I'm going to talk about are inseparably linked. There are these, there's, these first two insights are two incredible understandings that Daniel gets, that we get to see as well, about God. Daniel needed to see what I'm about to describe to you. And I want to suggest this morning that we as the people of God, especially in the midst of what was for many a surprising and contentious election, for our nation, we need to see these first two things now perhaps more than ever. The big picture Daniel sees that we see is that we look to a God who is truth and grace. We look to a God who is truth and grace. First, let's look more closely at truth. And he caught it and I read it. The start of chapter 11 reads, now I will tell you the truth. There's this reference, a verse back to the book of truth. And chapter 11, as I just discussed, is this lengthy historical survey of the future that follows. And we need to appreciate this first big picture idea of God is the God of truth by, again, sitting in and recognizing what we see. Israel is caught in the middle of rivalry and fighting between nations and is subject to brutality and loss because of the prideful and foolish schemes of men. When I preached upon the details of this in chapter 8, I said this then, and I want to repeat it now. What Daniel sees culminating in the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, that dictator, what Daniel sees, while it is grounded in history, that is an actual person. What Daniel sees is not isolated to just that one person, to his people, or to his time. Again, Back when I preached on Daniel chapter 8, I told you that right before going to the cross, Jesus invokes this vision in Daniel, not just to look back, but to describe a repeated pattern of antichrists, of leaders like Antiochus, who are violently opposed to the ways of God and who are vindictively oppressive in their treatment of God's people. So this vision, while grounded in history to come is also about history still yet to come. And when we look at this, we have to all acknowledge that 2,000 millennia later, this complex picture of violence, chaos, and war continues to be in our line of sight. It's still all too familiar. Relentless persecution, shocking injustices, devastating conflict, unbearable poverty mark still the reality of several of our surrounding nations, as well as the wider global body of Christ. We don't always see that. Our vision is sort of tunnel vision because, and I mean no disrespect in saying this, I live in this country too. We live in relative comfort and peace in this nation. And, and I think that's even worth pausing for a second because we have this tendency to kind of perceive our own national fears and problems on a way, way bigger scale that if you look around the world, they're not as big as we think they are. And so we don't often perceive that the reality of the darkness and suffering that Daniel sees here is still happening in places around our world. But that's okay. 
Because even though we in this country may not fit, fit, face the risk of invasion, even though we may not face the threat of genocide, even though we may not know the terror of war, we do confront the bigger picture of what Daniel sees. We do confront much lesser but no less real cruelties. We know bigotry. We know prejudice. We know hatred. We know being bullied. We know what it is to lose a job, to lose a home. We know what it is to face life-threatening illness. We know what it is to deal with death within our families. The point that I'm getting at in order to appreciate this God that Daniel sees, the big picture, is that the picture that Daniel confronts, we all, to some degree or another, recognize the sobering reality of. We all perceive the darkness. We all experience the chaos. We all wrestle with uncertainty. Everybody as R.E.M. once sang, hurts. We all suffer. We all ask, it may not be at the same time, we all ask, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? And in the face of the chaos all around us, we can be tempted, and we often are, to perceive that all that's happening, for good or ill, is just random. But Daniel gets to see the big picture. God reveals the future to Daniel, to us, so that we can see the big picture that the Lord is the God of truth. The Lord is the God of truth. The Lord is the one who moves the wheels of history and the nations. The God we look to is the God of truth, is the God who is at work in the midst of all the intricacies and plots of nations, in the midst of all their rising and attacking of one another. The God that we worship is the God of truth, the Lord who is at work in the whole realm of human affairs, even the elections of presidents. What Daniel gets to see, what we are enabled to see, is the course of history is not ultimately determined by what the centers of world power say. No, we worship the God who is truth, who is the real and ultimate power in this universe. Where we are going, where we will end up, what we will be as a people, as a world, is defined, has been decided, and will come to pass because of the will of God. My friends, I know that this, for some of us, is hard to grasp. And so part of seeing the big picture that we look to the God who is truth is understanding that while we can perceive that God is the God of truth, that God is truth, that doesn't mean that we can fully understand the truth of God. I want you to hear that again. Just because we can perceive that God is truth, that God is truth, doesn't mean we can fully understand the truth of God. Our ways, as the scriptures tell us, are not God's ways. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. We see in part, not the whole. And this is evidence right here. Daniel gets a passing glance. And in this passing glance, he encounters what I've told you previously apocalyptic literature is all about. He gets a passing glance of the interplay of heaven and earth. Through these visions, Daniel's eyes are open to see something greater that is happening, that's happening concurrently in the midst of all these scenes of nations in history. 
If you have your Bible open, look down to, to chapter 10, to these verses. It's very obscure, but I want you to see it because it's just a glimpse. But pay attention to verses in chapter 10, like 13 or 20. And when I was reading it, where all of a sudden this angel who talks to Daniel talks about the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece and how they, he was delayed coming because the prince of Persia was in my way. And then the chief of the princes, Michael, that's an angel, by the way, kind of helped me out. And all of a sudden you're looking at this and it's like I said, just a glimpse, but what we engage are references to what appear to be patron angels over respective nations. In other words, in a passing glance, what Daniel gets to see, what we get to see, is that there is a larger cosmic perspective to all that we perceive as happening in this world. Behind all the political entity, entities are not only human agents, but also spiritual beings. Now, again, we can know the truth of this, but not fully understand it, because there aren't many passages like this one. You could look at Ephesians 6, that comes to mind, or Revelation chapter 12, that comes to mind. But we're just getting momentary glances of the truth about God, the truth that is God. The Bible doesn't tell us much about angels and demons, despite what we often like to believe. What the Bible tells us about angels and demons is simply this, they are real. That ministering and rebelling spirits exist in another realm that operates alongside this one. Now, some of you are nodding your head or kind of looking at me like, okay, I get this. Others of you, I can see that smirk, that scoff, that, oh my gosh, are we serious here? Really? Woo! You know, I thought we got rid of that kind of superstitious stuff. I thought we were, you know, a different kind of church. We don't look for angels and demons everywhere. Didn't that kind of go out with the dark ages because aren't we after the enlightenment after all? Maybe that's you. Maybe it's not. Some might balk. Some might sneer in the belief of another realm where supernatural beings, angels, and demons exist. But I want to give you another take if you are in that place. Beyond just trusting the revelation of Scripture that the Bible says it is so, I want to invite you this morning to also consider the insights of science. Because contrary to what we often hear, sometimes what we believe, faith and science are not opposed to each other. Beyond the revelation of Scripture, consider this. We live in a world where more and more scientists are theorizing with increasing evidence and confidence in life elsewhere in the universe. In the possibility of a multiverse, a plurality of universes many of which are teeming with life. And when we hear this, right, when all of a sudden we are going through the TV channels and it comes on the Discovery Channel, we don't go, oh my gosh, please. We all like stop. Oh, this is fascinating. We give respectful attention. And what I want to suggest to you, again, is not that what science is theorizing is necessarily opposed to what Scripture reveals. Is it not possible, maybe even plausible, that such perceptions from science line up with the Bible's suggestion that this is not the only realm that exists, that other beings are out there? Daniel gets to see the big picture. And part of that big picture that Daniel sees is that we worship the God of truth. And my friends, recognizing this, the big picture, we can engage life in the times before us no matter how adverse or dark with hope, there is great comfort in acknowledging and embracing the big picture that's not only given to Daniel, but throughout all of the scriptures that God is sovereign over all human events and all other forces and all other realms. There's great comfort. And practically, right now, here and now, 
We are in the aftermath of an election, and there are going to be consequences as a result of this election. There always are. But depending upon one's viewpoint, those consequences that are coming are either anticipated to be good or bad. And here's the thing. Despite our eagerness, we're excited about it, or our concern, we're afraid. Neither of us, whatever side you're on, we don't know what the future holds for our nation, our world. But we do know who reigns over the past, the present, and the future. We worship a God who is eternal, who is truth, who knows and purposes, the scriptures say, the end from the beginning. And as a result of knowing that we worship the God of truth, we should worship and we ought to pray in the present, in the here and now, in light of God's interpretation of both history and the future. We can and we must live together in light of God's refining providence, believing and trusting that God uses all things to set us apart, to bring us home, to deliver us from death into everlasting life. The big picture Daniel sees is we look to a God who is truth and inseparably linked from this, the second part, a God who is grace, truth and grace. Let's talk about grace. This same God whom we observe through this vision as the one who moves the wheels of history and nations, who reigns over all principalities and powers, is also the God of grace. The God who we witness here being concerned and attentive to each single person even a person like Daniel. Did you catch that in chapter 10 while we were reading it? I know you didn't miss Daniel telling you how crazy this all is. Daniel tells us more than once, and it's not just here in this chapter, these visions are incredibly overwhelming. Daniel tells us right here, as he gets to look behind the curtain, that passing glance at a grander cosmic narrative at work, it's too much for him, right? He tells us, he literally tells us, he pales before the immensity of it all. But what really gets him, if you were paying attention, what causes Daniel to tremble, violently tremble, to become speechless, to be able to hardly be able to breathe, is seeing the man behind the curtain, standing before the living God, encountering the glorified Christ, beholding the whole truth and nothing but the truth that is God. Daniel expects to die. But in that moment, Daniel also saw this God, his God, our God, is the God of grace. And this grace is seen, experienced by Daniel in three distinctive movements that I want us to take a look at. First, if you look down at chapter 10, notice not once but twice in verses 12 and 18, the Lord tells Daniel, do not fear. Do not fear. Daniel, again, I almost want you to picture yourself here because I want you to really appreciate this. Daniel is standing in the presence of greatness. Nope, that's not enough. Daniel is standing before the very definition of greatness, of glory, of which all things at their best are but a reflection of. And Daniel is humbled, literally brought low by his inadequacy. Do you get that? his insufficiency, his inability to survive this encounter. And in the midst of his terrified trembling, we observe one of the truly most tender and beautiful moments recorded in Scripture. Rather than reject or condemn Daniel, Daniel is told not once but twice, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 
Understanding the big picture that God is a God of grace begins by recognizing you're out of your depth before this God. You're out of your league. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. It's not even close. It's actually rather embarrassing. And it's realizing all of this and in that moment being told by this God, being assured you don't have to be afraid. That you worship a God who doesn't want you to fear. Perceiving this God of grace begins with being, being told not to fear. That's where God always begins. You look through scripture, whenever God shows up, don't be afraid. He always starts, don't be afraid. But truly encountering this grace of God is seeing that you are loved. And Daniel is also assured, again, not once, but twice, verses 11 and 18 in chapter 10, he's assured he's greatly loved. If you're following me and you're looking down at your Bible right now at verses 11 and 18 in chapter 10, you're saying, um, doesn't say that. Because this is the weakest, lamest translation ever in the Bible. Chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, it says, Daniel, you are greatly esteemed. Wah, wah, wah. That is not an accurate translation of what is said to Daniel. The translation is, Daniel, you are greatly loved. The translation is, if you want to make two words into one, is one of my favorite things to say to you because it's what God says to us. Daniel, you are beloved. Daniel, you are beloved. Far from being rejected because he's asking questions. Far from being condemned because he was far from perfect. He's this imperfect, broken person. Daniel is much loved by the source of all love, by the God who is love. Isn't that the most wonderful thing any person can hear? I mean, we all just crave in the midst of our individual lives here and now just to know that someone loves us. But isn't the most wonderful thing you could hear to know that the creator of the universe, the author of life, knows your name and says, I love you? Because when we realize the true quality and depth of God's love for us, that love banishes all fear from our hearts. Do not fear and beloved are inseparably linked. God begins by do not fear and then he demonstrates the love to cast all those fears away. I want you to imagine, imagine, I mean it, imagine if God showed up right here, right now to tell you, you are greatly loved. Imagine if God showed up to tell you, you are beloved. Can you imagine it? My friends, you don't have to imagine it. You don't have to imagine it because he did show up to tell you, just like Daniel. Daniel saw Jesus by the side of the river. And we saw Jesus up close in person coming out of the river in the flesh. Do you remember that moment when he was baptized? And every time we, we get into those waters, I tell you that the words said to Jesus are the words said to us, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. Beloved, we worship a God of truth and grace who shows us his grace by taking away all of our fears by assuring us repeatedly of his love. But I look around today, 
other conversations I have one-to-one, and we hear this all the time. You've heard tons of sermons, been in lots of Bible studies. You've had one-on-ones with pastors, priests, whoever, and you've been told two fundamental revelations of Scripture that are the big picture, that God tells us not to be afraid and that God says that you are beloved, and yet despite hearing that again and again, there are many of us who doubt. There are many of us who doubt what we see. And be, be encouraged because Daniel doubts too, right? Daniel keeps falling to the ground, hiding his face. No, it can't be. I can't take it. It's too much. There's no way this is true. And that's why there's a third dimension to God revealing his grace to Daniel in this passage, and you can't miss it. The Lord tells Daniel not to fear. The Lord assures Daniel that he is loved. And then the Lord embodies his grace. He makes his grace tangible as the Lord touches Daniel. Three times, verses 10, 16, and 18, the Lord imparts his grace. He makes his grace real, strengthening Daniel by reaching out and touching him. My friends, beloved, God made his grace clear to Daniel by touching him, and God has made his grace clear to you by touching you. Jesus didn't just come to tell us not to be afraid. Jesus didn't just come to promise us that God really loves us. Jesus came to show us we don't have to be afraid. Jesus came to show us that we are loved by God, and Jesus shows us by reaching out and touching us, by touching our flesh, by taking it on, by bearing our burdens, by being tempted in every way that we are, by healing our wounds, by taking our sins upon himself and embracing the death we deserve. Do we get the big picture of God's truth and grace? Anytime you don't see it, anytime you can't see it, anytime you lose sight of the truth and grace of God, there's one place you can always look. The cross. The cross, at the cross, on the cross, through the cross, we see once and for all what Daniel saw, that we worship a God of truth and grace. I told you there were three things to see in the big picture. I've given you the two that are inseparably linked that are all about God, the God of truth and of grace. But the third thing to see in the big picture that can get so easily lost in the details is in chapter 11. In the midst of all the historical detail to come that's thrown in us, I want you to look in chapter 11 at verses 32 and 33. You could say it's a throwaway moment in the midst of what's going to happen, and I would disagree with you. Verses 32 and 33 in chapter 11 read, in the midst of all the stuff that's going on, but the people who know their God will firmly oppose him. And those who are wise will teach, will instruct many others. The third dimension of this big picture that we get to see in these two chapters is that knowing who God is, truly and fully seeing the person and character of God leads to sharing with and teaching others about this God. We aren't supposed to see the perfect marriage of truth and grace that is God. We aren't just supposed to see it. We're called to reflect it. We're called to reflect, to represent this beautiful tension of God's character. Daniel encounters a God who seeks to be known, a God who purposes to reveal himself, not primarily through visions, but through his people, but through the image of his people. 
Jesus came. Jesus reached out and touched us both to remove our fear and to assure us we are loved, but he did this so that we would be set free to share his truth and grace. We need to see the big picture because we can become so preoccupied by what is right in front of us that we can only perceive a narrow and misleading impression of the whole. Am I not alone in this? I hope I'm not. We can get so caught up in the little snapshot of history that we're a part of, that we're fighting and arguing with everyone else about what's happening right in front of us, that we can lose sight of the bigger picture, what God has done and what God is continuing to do in and through us and this world. My friends, what I am saying to you, the gospel according to Daniel, is that being a follower of Jesus, knowing this God in Christ, leads us to honestly seek how the Lord's Spirit is prompting and empowering us to answer the call to be a part of the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. And how timely, in the aftermath of this past week for us, how timely is it for us to see what Daniel sees? To have our vision of the future reoriented by the bigger picture of the kingdom of God. I don't want to say much, because a lot is being said. But one thing is absolutely, undeniably clear from this election. One thing. We are a divided and not a united nation. We are a divided and not a united nation. And you could probably extend that to the world. And regardless of where you stand on the outcome of this election, this lone fact that we are a divided and not a united nation should grieve and concern us all. My friends, and I don't want to know, you don't have to tell me, don't volunteer it, I don't know who you voted for. But many of our fellow citizens are hurting right now. They're hurting right now. And there needs to be space for that. Rather than judgment, rather than scorn, and God forbid, rather than gloating. This is once again one of those, and they come along, and I don't know if we catch them, one of these unique moments for us as the church, as the body of Christ. Because we're in one of those moments where we can acutely see something that we all know. We've just become complacent about, that there is a great cultural divide. There is a great cultural divide in our nation. There is a great cultural divide in our world. And that cultural divide needs a cultural bridge. And as followers of Jesus, being able to see and know this God who is truth and grace, we are called not to stand on either side of the bridge, but we are called as followers of Jesus to extend the truth and grace of God that we know. And so I'm saying to you, what God is saying to me through this word this morning is we need to commit as the people of God, as followers of Christ, to reflect the gracious and truthful character of our God. And we need to do that through listening. We need to do that through seeking to understand. You don't have to agree, but you can understand. And above all else, we've got to commit to be willing to forgive and to extend love, because love is the greatest leverage we have been given. Love is what we've been called to share. Love that perfectly embodies the very character of God. Love that perfectly embodies the truth and grace of this God, because it's that kind of love, the love of Jesus Christ, that can build the bridge 
rather than extend the gap. My friends, what Daniel sees, what we can see, is the grace and truth of God are greater. They're greater than every footnote of history. They're greater than every footnote of history, even when from our vantage point, right, it looks like times are worse than they've ever been. Because we have been given eyes to see this morning not a dead end, but a resurrected hope. Not a road that leads back to the same old thing, but a road to where all things are being made new. So let us live without fear and instead live by faith. Let us not only know that we are loved, but bear the burden. Overwhelm people with the knowledge, the truth, the grace that they are loved by God. Let us together see the bigger picture of the kingdom of God, the grace and truth of this God who lords over all history, who ministers to every person. And when we have eyes to see that, we will know that tomorrow is not the worst to come. Tomorrow is the best that's yet to come. Amen.